You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What Mad Universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Black Eagle surveying the earth from some high mountain, the king passed by in his majesty. His burney was of black chainmail, his collar, sleeves, and skirt edged with plates of dull gold set with hyacinths and black opals. His hose were black, cross-guarded with bands of sealskin trimmed with diamonds. On his left thumb was his great signet ring fashioned in gold on a semblance of the worm Ouroboros that eateth his own tail. The bezel of the ring, the head of the worm, made of a peach-colored ruby of the bigness of a sparrow's egg. His cloak was woven with the skins of black cobras, stitched together with gold wire, its lining of black silk sprinkled with the dust of gold. The iron crown of witchland weighed on his brow, the claws of the crab erect like horns, and the sheen of its jewels was many-colored like the rays of Sirius on a clear night of frost and wind of yuletide. The Wormerobarus, 1922, by E.R. Edison. Hi, welcome to the season finale, season two finale of What Mad Universe. Um, I'm uh, Philip, and with me as always is Adam. Hello. Um, and um, yeah, today we're discussing a... Uh, I'm not sure if I'd call it influential per se, but uh, um, a very notable... Um, example of early fantasy, pre-Tolkien high fantasy novel, uh, The Worm Robbers by E.R. Edison, which is from uh, um, 1922. Um, it's... Um, I, I think it's a, okay to call it notable, and, it, like, it's influential in the sense that I think, like, for as far as we can tell, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, all these guys, they definitely read it, right? You know, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft. And, and liked it to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's like I think um, it's the kind of thing where even if they didn't like it, it would have had an impact on them. Like it, <laughs> they might have been a response to. Um, and it's it's it it seems to be loom fairly large. It's for all that it's been somewhat forgotten nowadays, as a lot of fantasy has between you know in the early twentieth century. Uh, we we spoke about this very at right at the beginning of the season when we talked about Jurgen, because uh, fantasy was actually a pretty Hop and genre for a while there, uh, especially I believe between World War One, World War Two, and only a few have really survived down to the present day where people know their names. Um, so it's a little, and and then when Tolkien came, he kind of swept away everything else. So it's a little hard to say like what was 
hugely influential and what wasn't. But I, I'm pretty sure this was a very popular book and it was it, it had a big impact on everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just mean um, uh, it's hard to call it influential today because most people don't know about it. Um, right, right. Which is um, unfortunate, like even more so than Lord Dunsany, um, who still has direct impact on Lovecraft and whatnot. Um, it's harder to... Um, to see signs of the worm Ouroboros in modern day fiction, um, right? It, it's it represents a uh, a different path that fantasy could have taken if Tolkien hadn't come along, right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say so much a different path as the a a, a, a former paradigm for fantasy that's been kind yeah. of left by the weight outside because I think there were a fair number of works in this general style at the very end of the 19th and then early 20th centuries. And I think, I, I do feel like this probably had an impact on Tolkien, as you said. Uh, you said Tolkien liked it, right? He was, he was a Yes, he, was he said it was, it, he, he enjoyed the imagination of it. He criticized um, two key parts, uh, the names. Uh, hmm. It has a lot of silly names, and they're not very consistent in the way that Tolkien would probably like, you know, a guy who, <laughs> for, yeah. who, based his whole novel on fan fiction for the language he invented. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and he also criticized the morality, specifically of the ending, which we'll talk about. Right, right. The ending, um, or is it the beginning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, it's... it's um, uh, yeah, I absolutely can see that. Uh, you, you know, it's really funny, um, because it seems really silly to say that this book might have been influenced in any way by the John Carter of Mars series. Like, it's just, it, 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 it's not, <laughs> it's not really in any way like that. It's about as far apart as you can get for a, a genre story that has a couple of the same trappings as John Carter, and yet it does have those trappings. It's literally the idea of going to another world and there's, you know, basically fantasy happening on another world rather than science fiction in the classical sense, right? Yeah, uh, the um, the book starts with a framing story, which is dropped about three chapters in, um, where a man on Earth named Lessingham is visited by a talking martlet, a, a kind of bird, who has a magical hippogriff who will show him uh, the, the world of Mercury. Uh, and that's what it's called at the beginning. Um, after which we're... we're um, transported along with him to um, um, to this land uh, with uh, warring nations called uh, Demon Land, Witch Land, Goblin Land, Imp Land, etc. Um, and um, uh, we have the, the idea that Lessingham is watching all this uh, invisibly, so he's sort of just uh, an observer and can't be seen or felt by anybody around him. Um, and uh, he appears again in... Um, in chapter three, where he's he moves forward, it's it said that uh, the hippogriff can also move him forward in time. Um, that's how he jumps scenes, um, and then afterwards is never mentioned again. Yeah, uh, Lessingham it's very is apparently yeah, it's very odd. Lessingham is apparently the main character of um, Edison's other uh, fantasy trilogy, the Zimiamvian uh, trilogy, which I haven't read. Um, uh, I'm not even sure. It, it's it seems to be because Zimbiambia 
Simiambia, very hard name to say, um, <laughs> yeah. is is mentioned in uh, in the Wormerobarus as sort of like a heaven like thing, but apparently that's not how it's portrayed in in those books. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, so- Lessingham is a character in that, and apparently uh, the events of the Wormerobarus are uh, mentioned, or at least his experiences are like alluded to. Um, so. I don't know. I guess he doesn't completely disappear since he's in other books, but in this book, he's not mentioned after chapter three. So one of the things about this story that I've been led to understand is that he basically came up with it when he was 10 years old. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my understand, uh, he, he came up with aspects of it, namely the characters, um, some of the events, uh, when he was in his early teens, uh, Edison, um, so that's that explains why characters have like there's brothers named Just Brandic de Ha and Spitfire. Uh, right. Oh, sorry, Brandic de Ha is their cousin. Goldry Blisco is their other brother. Yeah, um, Goldry Blisco. Uh, Brandic de Ha is their cousin, and why there's there's a character named uh, Fax Fay Faz and Mervash Faz and Prince yeah. Lafiries and uh, like these are very silly names that are have no like linguistic connection to each other. Right. Um, and it's like Spitfire even, is like the character's name. It seems to be like right. not a nickname though. He does literally breathe fire, uh, which is mentioned once and then never again. Right. <laughs> it's sort of something that comes well, up a lot. So, so this is the thing. And then even the fact that it's like Pixie land and it land yeah. and all those places. And, and this is the thing I, I, it really does kind of feel, and, and this is another thing that might, you know, tie it a bit to Tolkien. Uh, it, it does feel almost like he did come up with this, as we say, when he was 10. I'm sure it went through multiple revisions, but it like he may have been working on it throughout his entire life. I think he published this when he was about 40 years old. And um, I, and it was his first novel, I believe. And uh, I, yep. I think he, he may have been literally working on it over and over and revising it. And le- that may explain a lot of the weird sort of things that are just kind of clinging to it from earlier drafts that, that didn't get revised. And that yeah. may also and I think include... the names in particular is something that he, like he was a, probably attached to these characters by this point and wasn't willing to change the names. Right. Um, other things like Lessingham, I don't know. I, I maybe Well, Lessingham, see, it, I think I feel like Lessingham is, he decided, well, I've got this new idea, this new character, Lessingham, he's going to be my viewpointless sort of, omniscient narrator who's basically astrally projecting that's why i brought up john carter because he astrally yeah. projects to another cut to another planet but then he quickly falls into basically telling the same story that he'd been working on since he was a kid at which point like they're literally describing it as earth even though it's supposed yeah, to be a planet yeah, mercury they say it's mercury is very tenuous as uh the planet mercury one it's described like uh, earth is except with different geography and different history and whatnot but like uh it, it mentions like yuletide like we said in the opening it has it has a moon it has season you know yeah and um, the greek the it, greek gods and yeah like the greek are, gods are worshipped uh the um yeah it's and they say middle earth frequently in the mm-hmm. not not in the tolkien sense but in the sort of old norse sense of this is the world this is the known world middle earth right is, yeah, exactly. And that, again, you know, I, I don't know if that was specific. But I, I'm going to doubt it was an influence on Tolkien because he would have been into that stuff by then anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think but, it's a matter of having similar uh, sources. Uh, but yeah. Right. 
But also, but even, okay, so then the other thing, which is literally the most confusing thing about this book, which is the fact that the characters are demons, goblins, and witches, but they're basically described as humans and even called humans in the story. Yep. <laughs> which yeah, is... uh, they, them, they're basically just different races of humans. There's uh, mentions at the beginning, uh, the introductions, um, that they have hor- that the demons at least have horns. At right. Least. Um, it's and as you say, Spitfire spits first, fire. Yeah. Spitfire yeah. has uh, streams of uh, pale blue fire coming out of his nostrils at all times. It mentions that at the beginning and then <laughs> never again. The horns are mentioned a few times. Uh, I believe Brandic Taha is like filigree worked into his horns. It, it's it's probably it says horns grew on their head. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's probably like some people have interpreted it as horned helmets. Um but uh, but that scene comes in when they're just sort of chilling and having a party, yeah, so it doesn't yeah. even make sense they'd be wearing their helmets, right? Yeah, so they, the demons at least seem to have horns, um, but it's unclear if that's like a like all of the people of Mercury have horns or just the demons. Like, mm-hmm. what what do the goblins look like? Uh, they just seem to be humans, you know. Right. They, the, the red, there's also a character called the Red Foliot, right. who is uh, red. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if I'm not like mistaken. bright. No, he's bright red, like uh, the color of. Uh, I think it said a woodpecker's head or something. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> they call. Yeah, they refer to him as a lobster derisively. Um, so yeah, there it, it does seem to be some sort of alien world with like you know the fr- you know rubber forehead aliens <laughs> um, where they have like some sort of uh, distinguishing feature, though it's it's not like described for a lot of the races but you have to sort of assume uh when i when i draw these um because i've done a lot of art for worm Robberus, when i draw the goblins say i give them really big ear you know pointed ears and mm-hmm. um uh uh and the the imps are sort of like half goblin half demon you know um right. i mean if i was going to interpret it i would interpret it as like there are these beings on mercury that have maybe influenced our stories. And so we talk about goblins, but we've exaggerated them into monstrous beings, even though they're basically like us, like it, yeah. in as much as there's an actual intent behind it. But, uh, but as I say, it is this very strange uh, thing that reads as uh, like a combination of something I started as a kid and I've been revising since then and something that I wrote as kind of a stream of consciousness and just like forgot about stuff I wrote three chapters earlier kind of thing yeah, yeah um, at the same time the world is is fairly well put together in terms of say geography and stuff right I, I made a map as one of the art things i did for this and it's mostly consistent there's one uh sort of continuity error that i picked up in terms of geography and that one place is described as being in the both the east and west of demon land though that might be me misinterpreting something but um Otherwise, it all seemed to fit together, and other people have made maps and have similar, came to similar um, mm-hmm. uh, conclusions, and that you know things like fit together. It's it is a well realized fantasy world. Um, yeah. Just like there's, it's a very odd book. I, there's I, well, th- what you're talking about there with like that's actually th- so again. This is similar to what happened with J.R. Tolkien because he was. Uh, like, he was working on the Silmarillion since, like, I think his schoolboy days, really. And certainly then when he went off to fight World War One, he was sort of dreaming it up that whole time. And he was 
you know, working on it as, you know, an English professor would. And he was, you know, his big, his number one concern with the, was the languages. But he did do similar stuff with, like, maps and, and nations and, and understanding the geography. Oh, and really, uh, it you know, should be known, uh, should be mentioned, yeah, Edison himself didn't make any maps in this case, but it just sort of, right. um, the geography is described enough that people can make maps. And right. there, there's difference it, between... There's differences between different interpretations of the maps. There's a few different takes on it, but right. mostly it, it's consistent. Well, but that, well, that again, that's the thing, though. If he'd been imagining it since he was a kid and going back to it over and over again, uh, he probably did have some aspects of it very carefully worked out, right? And that's mm. probably what we're seeing in that. So maybe he cared a bit more about the geography than he did some of the other details that kind of mutated as they went along. And again, I, I bring up Tolkien because that was something that happened with him, too. Like, the, 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 the Silmarillion, the book The Silmarillion, if you read it, uh, which I'm a big fan of Silmarillion, actually. A lot of people find that a little bit hard going. Uh, I, I actually, honestly could not get through it as a teenager, and I haven't revisited it. I, I need to get back to it because I think I'd be able to enjoy yeah. it more now, but I just haven't done it. Well, the Silmarillion has a very uh, consistent feel of mythology. It really does feel like akin to something like the Bible, where it's like, yeah, this is our real history, and it's very carefully worked out. And I really, I really appreciate that. But... It needs to be said, even though J.R. Tolkien's name is on the Silmarillion, the version of the Silmarillion that we have is, for all intents and purposes, it is uh, co-authored by uh, Christopher Tolkien, his son. Because Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien took all the material that J.R. Tolkien had been doing for decades of his life, it, lot, like both during and after the publication of, of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and everything else, and uh, reworked it into a... Uh, like a really big, like he, 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 he pared it down into one form. The various versions that Tolkien had written, like, and then of course they were, they published all the different versions in, I think that big 10 volume series that Tolkien did. And like, there, there's all these fragments and scraps and they contradict each other. So it's been revised and revised and revised over and over and over again. Very much like the actual composition of the Bible. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And, and I mean, that's... Like, by the time Tolkien published Lord of the Rings, uh, he basically said, you know, I don't think there's any point in actually publishing the Silmarillion because I actually like the way you get a glimpse of it in Lord of the Rings and how it's, you know, mentioned as a as a backstory and how there are references and stuff, but it's something that only like really hardcore fans would appreciate, which of course he developed a, lots of hardcore fans. So it became absolutely a thing. Uh, but, but that's um, like, I think you can see something similar happening here. Like this is the end result of a multiple revision process. And I think also the fact that Lessingham is the, not the main character, but the narrator, and then went on to start his own novels. It was almost like a new idea meeting an old idea. And he and so the new idea got got it got us into the old idea, but then he went off and wrote more stories about you know the new idea, as it were. That's how I would interpret it. Yeah, uh, I'd have to read the uh, that trilogy in order to yeah. uh, confirm that. Um, I just haven't gotten to it, but yeah, um, yeah, I I can't find much on the uh, Zimiamvia trilogy except that it is apparently written uh, similarly in this pseudo-Shakespearean style. Uh, that this oh yeah, is. It, it should also be noted, uh, unlike most fantasy books, even at the time, uh, this isn't written in contemporary English like uh, Lord of the Rings is. Like, um, it, it's, it's written in Jacobean English, and um, I'm not an expert in that, but 
I, I'm told uh, it's very accurate um, to how people in uh, sh like Shakespeare's times would have uh, would have spoken or at least written. So Jacobian would be Shakespeare in English, right? Am I right about that? Um, yes, yes. The uh, relating to King James the first of England. So right, uh, King around James that time. In, yeah. Right. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, he's, uh, Edison, the, the author, by the way, is Eric, uh, Eric R. Uh, Edison, um, and, uh, Because he, fantasy uh, writers have to have R as a middle initial. <laughs> yeah, apparently. I'm surprised uh, not he's Eric. not E-R-R -R Edison. <laughs> yes, right. Everyone, everyone did that to copy, uh, to copy, uh, E-R-R Edison. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a, um, um, yeah, it's, it, he's doing it in a, a, a Shakespearean, mode and i some of the things that happen do somewhat they feel shakespearean in that there's sort of core intrigue uh, among the witches among the villains largely um yeah the heroes are on a kind of a quest and doing more of a arthurian thing whereas the the villains yeah and are, there's also on a lot of norse saga stuff um uh he was uh Edison was apparently a member of the Viking Society for Northern Research. Oh, so, okay. among other things, he had an interest in Vikings. But, uh, yeah, there, there's Arthurian, uh, Norse saga. Um, right. They the, actually the mentioned, they mentioned Njal's saga at the beginning. Um, she's, that's, what they were, that's what Lessingham and his wife are reading at the beginning. Uh, yeah, if you remember. that makes yeah. sense. Um, it, it is it, it's a complicated uh, book. Um it, not in turn like the plot's fairly straightforward, but there are a lot of characters. There are a lot of uh, different motivations. A lot of um, um, a lot of complicated names. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, they, a lot he of, uses. Um, he's got three characters named Corund, uh, Corsus, and Corinius. Corinius, yeah, which is who are all uh, lords of uh, Witchland, the uh, the bad guys. Uh, there's also a uh, Laxus, I think, uh, who's an who's like the fourth member of the band, so he's the odd man out. With yeah, the L name. And that's but, a yeah. thing you see in Tolkien, and and I think in Norse sagas as well. I think they're in both cases they were pulling from Norse sagas that you yeah. get like you know, jo Jacks, Flax and Wax, and they'd be brothers, and they'd have you know like they like yeah. the, the names would often be very similar. Um, like all the yeah. names of the dwarves in the Hobbit were taken from uh, the Iceland, I think from the uh, Elderetta or one of the one of the yeah um, yeah it's Icelandic it's the sagas. name of a bunch of dwarves from uh, from uh, one of the um, Eddas uh, yeah I think the Elder um, the uh, Gandalf included was the name of one of the dwarves but right anyway. um, right and they're and it's always like Biffer Boffer and Bomber kind of thing yeah and I, I think that's but, what he's um, doing it, with the, the, the witches yeah here. and there's also uh, two uh, imp characters named Mervash Faz and Fax Faz but it's it which makes it odder that the the main brothers are named Just Spitfire and Goldry Blusco uh, right which are not linguistically connected at all but again there's you know right. reason, real world reasons for that i suppose <laughs> yeah and brandock daha which is a very scottish sounding name uh or yeah. celtic at least maybe Irish, yeah I guess. and uh uh brandock daha's um uh castle uh has the um um inscription on the the gates outside ye braggers and ah be scared in awe Frey Brandock de Ha, so very right. Scottish. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. He use, um, he's using kind of old Scottish uh, 
inflection. So Though, apparently, uh, again, the the uh, the demon demon land seems to be mostly based on Norse people, other than the the names and um, but uh, they they're usually described as blonde haired, uh, fair skinned, um, and they have sort of the um, the attitude of um, Norse heroes, Vikings, that sort of thing. And the yeah. uh, the region they live in is is mountainous. They they live on an island nation, demon land. Uh, witch land, on the other hand, and it, again, the the witches are just sort of witches in name only. There is magic used, but it's not that common. Um, but witch land is is like a watery marsh marshy land, um, sort of like England, I suppose. Um, and they're like the the evil empire. There's um, um, well, I don't think they were the evil empire. I got the impression well, that they were like they were kind of equivalent to Demon Land, but they were each side was kind of making big blustering noises yeah, about how powerful uh, the, they the were. The book starts off. Uh, there was just a war uh, where all the civilized nations of of the world uh, uh, teamed up against uh, the ghouls and apparently wiped them all out. Um, it's uh, uh, the ghouls were apparently cannibalistic pirates. It, it's unknown whether they had their own nation or what exactly they were. Uh, at one point, uh, a character named Lord Grow tries to uh, um, insult the, the demons by um, uh, saying they just you know, genocided the ghouls, but uh, another character speaks up and said, no, that had to happen. Uh, so, um, uh, so, yeah, they, they had just gone, you know, allied together for this war, and now uh, Witchland is making moves against Demonland, and uh, yeah, it, it the story begins with a, um, a celebration in uh, in Demonland, in Galling Castle, uh, Lord Justice Castle, and um, the ambassador from Witchland shows up and uh, insults them and declares war, and um, that's sort of what sparks off the, the conflict. Um, and, uh, they have a, I'm just describing the plot now, but, uh, uh, they decide to settle it via a wrestling match between, uh, Goldry Blisco and the, and King Garice of Witchland, uh, in which King Garice gets killed, but, uh, because of his, uh, uh, he, he had, uh, done an enchantment where he has, uh, the ability to resurrect himself, basically. Yeah, um, every king of Witchland is the same guy resurrected yeah. in a new body, basically. Yeah, uh, they seem to look the same too, but they have slightly different personalities, or at least different ways of going about things. So uh, the previous Garice was a was a strong guy, a wrestler, and the new guy is more of a evil magician sort of thing. Um, but uh, that's another so one of those that, things that's like it's in there and it's almost like a half-formed idea and you're not sure to what degree he pursued it even though that's where the title of the book comes from it's because he wears yeah, the but it's also thematically linked uh, there's a lot of yeah, yeah. Uh, repetition in the story and of course the ending which we'll get to yeah. um, but I mean that's where the Romoroboros appears in the story as the ring of yeah. the, the King of Witchland because he is immortal and he keeps Re reincarnating himself basically mm. yeah um yeah so uh Impland is depicted as more of a barbarian savage area um the the imps come across as as sort of backwards um um and um 
uh, a little bit savage, not not entirely uncivilized, but uh, a little bit uh, barbarian-like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a land of like manticores and things, uh, monsters to fight. Uh, so journeys into Impland, which happens a few times in the story, are like uh, quests into a perilous land, sort of thing. Right. Well, uh, seeking um, the the big mountain, which is where all the all the important stuff is. Uh happens in this story because in it basically what happens is the witches uh, kidnap Goldry Blusco and spirit him away to this uh, huge mountain and uh, so uh, Juss and Brandok Daha go on a quest to get him back and uh, meanwhile the witches are basically invading demon land essentially it's there's a there's more than that but I'm kind of reducing it to a yeah uh, so the uh, heroes and Spitfire are... stays behind to sort of lead the demon armies um, to rally against the witches. Yeah, and as I say, it's it's like uh, with Juss and and Brandok Daha, it's got a very um, it's got a very King Arthur feel because they're on a the king is on a quest with his brave knight, and they encounter like a mysterious sorcerer woman who shows them visions and has a whole you know has guidance for them and and sort of tests them a bit and and uh, you know it's to seek his his friend who shot up in a tower and basically. Per, either dead or, but not, as it turns out, not dead. He's just cryogenically preserved, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's got that very Arthurian feel. They have to get a, um, a hippogriff egg and hatch it so they can fly the hippogriff to, uh, to rescue Goldry Blusco. Right, because he's uh, on the, the top of a the tall mountain. The imp that they're with uh, jumps on the hippogriff and dies. Yeah, he jumps. Um, he he hugs the egg. The egg hatches, and the hippogriff takes spirits him away, and they they crash and die. <laughs> so yeah. let's find another one, basically. Um, yeah. But it's it's actually. Uh, but yeah, so I found that part of the story way more compelling. The heroes on their quest. Uh, then you go back to the Witchland, and as they're invading, they're all scheming against each other, and it's very Shakespearean. Uh, there's there's a there's an affair going on. Um, I, again, I I actually lost track of who was having an affair because you've got three characters who have very very similar yeah. names. Um, yeah, but that's that's a major problem with it. The witches, they are diff, uh, very different characters and personality, but because of the names, they all blend yeah. together and it becomes confusing. I'll um, say Corinius did. I got him by the end because he's the he's the young hothead who keeps who actually is the most competent general and he keeps conquering. Uh, big parts of uh, of Demon Land, and Corsus was like the old guy who's kind of a, a coward, I think. Um, but yeah, it's a little hard to tell who was you know cheating on who and how. Like the, I be, if I'm not mistaken, the queen was having an the queen of Witchland, uh, Prismyra, was having a was having an affair with. Uh, I want to say it was Corund. Yeah, it was Corund. Um, and uh, but of course, Goris is her husband. Um, yeah, so so there's all this sort of intrigue going on, which doesn't really ultimately there. It some of it pays off at the at the very end. It's how the bad guys meet their comeuppance uh, in a yeah, very um, in a very Hamlet which inspired one po- bit. Corinius po- tries to poison the rest of them, right? Is right. Corinius? Yeah, he does. Yeah. He's uh, no, it's uh, Corsus does. Oh, Corsus does, and then Corinius kills Corsus. Is that right? It? Yeah, it's okay. it's basically what happens is that they're all 
uh, after, you know, uh, Jess and, and uh, Brandok Daha return home, they lead the armies of Demonland to throw off all the armies of Witchland, uh, and the witches are, like, sort of going back and forth, and they've almost, they're, they're a little, they're pinned in, so they start having an argument about what they're going to do, and uh, they're, and Corsus basically says, well, they're, they've been honorable, so if we, if we surrender, they'll treat us well, and the, 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 witch, the other witches all say, nah, to heck with that. Um, so Corsus has them all poisoned so he can surrender to them and, and be, you know, in charge of Witchland. But as he's trying to get away, uh, Corinius stabs them, and so they all die, basically. Um, except, and then the queen comes in and is so horrified that Corrund is dead that she drinks the poison herself. Which So that whole bit has a very Hamlet, Shakespeare, yeah. uh, Antony and Cleopatra feel to it kind of thing. Um, that Again, very Shakespearean-inspired, I think. Uh, that is a good... Uh, climax the way that the, that the way that happened they all kind of they hoist each other on their own petards because the heroes are so honorable and noble and so forth they're not gonna you know they would have shown mercy essentially to the witches but they 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 all and okay so now the, the other thing that i wasn't that was uh, i honestly did not quite process what happened here but um because it, it involves a prophecy which is written in even an older english style like an like old like beowulf old english yeah. Um, and the, when Goris uh, is, you know, he uses a conjuration to spirit away Gondry Blesko early in the novel. Then later, as they're being, you know, a, they're surrounded by the heroes and their numbers almost up, he goes away to the Iron Tower to do a uh, to do a another conjuration. But he's told apparently there's a prophecy saying if you conjure under the wrong <laughs> under the wrong circumstances, it will doom you. And that's apparently what happens because then. Like in the next chapter, he doesn't chapter have was, uh, Lord Grow to help him as he does in the first case. Is but but there was something specific in the prophecy, and again, I can't really understand it because it's old 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 English. Yeah, um, and it says something to do with like if you do it at this time, it will doom you, and you won't you won't suffer from it, and that's and it causes the Iron Tower to collapse. I I think the implication is sort of if you try to use it to like save your skin when you've lost a fair battle you're you're out of it but i i, I wasn't clear on it because again it's <laughs> the, the way he chooses to use the language is is unfortunately a little impenetrable so i i wasn't clear on but anyway he makes the wrong choice he tries to conjure and the iron tower collapses literally off screen like then they cut back to all the other witches and then they watch the iron tower collapse and goris is dead basically um which is <laughs> it's kind of funny um but yeah, that's that's how he meets his maker basically by trying to use. Ma there's there's relatively little magic per se in this. There's fantastical stuff, but uh, yeah, not a lot um, of wizardry. There's the sending at the beginning, which is um, as we said, he he uses it sparingly because it was so difficult the first time. Um, it's mentioned that Lord Juss is familiar with the ways of the arts magical, but doesn't use them. Um, and that's basically it for, like, wizardry. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like I said, there's weird stuff. They go to the, the castle of uh, the queen. I'm sorry, her name again Sofinispa. is impronounceable. Fo okay, Sopanispa. Uh, and she's, uh, and like, yeah, it's just, it's a very Arthurian uh, thing of, you know, it's a mysterious castle with strange visions, and she tells them they have to find the hippogriff's egg and all that kind of stuff. So there's yeah, definitely magical... Yeah, she's sort of connected with the gods and stuff, so... She's yeah. like a, more of a supernatural being, but yeah, uh, she, and she's immortal too. Like she's yeah. she's a seventeen year old immortal apparently. Um, 
which they specifically say that she keeps saying, yeah, I'm a 17 year old, but also I'm older than like five times older than you because I never <laughs> died. Basically she had this whole tragic backstory. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 as you say, it's, it, it's using Nordic sagas and, and, and King Arthur and Shakespeare and, and, and echoing this. And like I say, it, it is fascinating to me that he decided to use that whole idea of it's about astral projection to another planet, even though in every other respect, it's an old fashioned fantasy fairy tale story like there's there's really no need for it to be set on mercury you could just start the story oh, absolutely not yeah um. <laughs> it, it it's it's basically like he could have done what tolkien did which is just tell this story as if and i don't all know the like, planets mercury it's it's so odd because <laughs> even at the time like they knew mercury was hot and you right. know tide locked and all that stuff yeah it was, I, it was known <laughs> I suppose you could argue that when he started it as a kid, again, it would have been the late 19th century and maybe they didn't know as much, but it's, I mean, it's obviously scientific realism is not the point anyway. Um, mm. But it is interesting that just like, cause when you consider that the John Carter books uh, do the same thing, you kind of say, Oh, well that, there was something in the air or in the water at that time where people were just obsessed with the idea of astral projection to other planets. Lovecraft. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, well. that, that does come up in a lot of Victorian era uh, stories. Like there were uh, not just stories. Um, uh, there were accounts of like psychics being in contact with Martian civilizations and things. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, it's, well, I mean, this is 1922 too, so it's not, not really Victorian either. And again, it's like John Carter's American and this guy was British so it was just, it was a thing that, I guess, pop sci-fi, we were talking about in the in the Labyrinth of Hell episode, the Karnaki episode, uh, about how there was a, there, there was that intersection of a, of a period where the fantastical and the paranormal had a bit of scientific credibility to a, to a degree, uh, and that seems to have affected a lot of the pop culture of that era. I think you see it starting to die down a bit in the 1930s. Oddly enough, Lovecraft's someone you can point to for that because he's um, his early stuff is a bit more purely fantastical, and his later stuff is a more is closer to real science fiction. Um, and and I think that that may actually represent a bit more of a a trend line in pop culture as well. I think I think the depression seems to have brought on for whatever reason people got a bit more caught up with like quote sign you know, post-enlightenment stuff and, and science fiction stuff. But again, you the fact that people were, I guess, thrilled by, you know, astronomical discoveries at that time, it was it was evoking people's imaginations, like, uh, you know, Holst and everything. Um, mm -hmm. And and the, the uh, early but yeah, silence. It, this yeah. basically uses Mercury as a, like, just a secondary fantasy world. It's like Middle Earth. It's like... Yeah. Uh, well, not quite Narnia, because that's like another dimension thing, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, Narnia Yeah, Narnia being explicitly another dimension, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings being the past of Earth, and it is actually something Tolkien had to talk about uh, eventually, because people said, oh, is this set on another planet? And he basically said, well, no, it's not another planet. It's supposed to be a mythical past of Earth. Um, okay, you know. so secondary fantasy world. I, I guess Westeros is a better example. Yeah, that's another one. Well, of course, the thing is, when Tolkien did his, uh, everyone started copying Tolkien and creating their own fantasy worlds without necessarily creating a framework for where they were coming from. Like when you when you you know when you look at Game of Thrones, there's no actual explanation for what Westeros is. It's just 
it's another world, basically. It could be another dimension. Yeah. It could be a, another planet, I guess. Uh, but Same with the Earthsea. Yeah, yeah. It's just a fantasy world. You're just supposed to take it. And, but And it is funny that I, I think Tolkien, that is one of the big things Tolkien did, is that he didn't rationalize it. So Edison is at a point where he had to rationalize it. He had to either... Um, and, I, I, I'm not sure Tolkien was the first, because... Um, uh, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, William Morris, uh, the uh, um, an earlier fantasy writer than Tolkien, did come up with his own. Uh, not 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 really developed enough to be geographies per se, but uh, the lands had their own names and stuff. And um, right. So. Uh, oh uh, no, sure, but I'm just talking about the the idea of just saying here's this other here's this story in a setting which is clearly not Earth, but it's got the character of, you know, an old-fashioned saga, like yeah, Earth's fairy tales like of I fantasy. Yeah, like I said, uh, William Morris sort of did that first, but not as developed in okay. terms of, um, uh, you can't, um, you couldn't really make maps of William Morris stories. I think people have tried, but basically just traveling in a straight line sort of thing. Um, but but I think that's the thing because with 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 Tolkien he was so specific and he did make maps and he was so specific about this other world like you can kind of pass it off with the Hobbit, which again was not originally intended to be set in the same world as the Silmarillion. Um, but you could pass that off in the Hobbit. It's it's simple enough that you could say okay it's some mythical lost European country. Uh, but with Lord of the by the time you get to Lord of the Rings it's very clearly another world that he has designed that has its own, you know, uh, nations and so forth like that. To to do that, I think uh, with a lot of the old-fashioned fantasy before that, like like we saw with Jurgen, for instance, with James Branch Cavill, um, he just sets it in an imaginary European country. And yes, the geography doesn't correspond to anything in our world, but we're just kind of saying, oh yeah, a long time ago, you know, once upon a time, and that's the that's all the setting we need. Yeah, can it's, just create it's definitely the world. Earth. It's just an Earth with another country right. in it, like Latveria in the Marvel universe or whatever. Right, right. And this seems Romorobor seems to fall into a period where he had because he was so he was going in such detail in crafting this world. He had to rationalize it as being not Earth, basically, or you I, know, I someone like Robert E. Howard doing yeah, yeah, or Robert um, E. Howard doing the like. Uh, like he was doing a antediluvian, as we've talked about in the past, mm -hmm. an antediluvian story. So there's a rationalization for this is why this is a world like this. And Tolkien did. It, it, Tolkien's is technically antediluvian too, but he didn't explain that in any detail. He just sort of presented yeah. you with the world, and that's I, I think, think the that's, paradigm shift. That's that's a possible explanation, though. Um, I think if because uh, he doesn't, you know, explain. I'm not sure how to phrase this, but it's so not a science fiction story that it's hard to um, take the idea that it's on the planet Mercury seriously <laughs> from the Well, text. sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't even think that... I wouldn't even feel like Edison was taking it very seriously. I think he just needed to give that little, you know, hand-wavy thing. Remember when we looked at Vampire City and we talked about how um, they had to? it had to end with It's All a Dream? Because yeah. that was the, that was the style at the time, and there had to be that sort of, I guess, safety net for the audience. I think in this case, using the planet Mercury is the safety net of that era, um, and that Tolkien is the one who basically said no safety net, or didn't bother with a safety net, as it were. Or mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, again, even though there technically is that antediluvian 
explanation, he didn't present it. And that's what opened the floodgates of just, oh yeah, here's a fantasy world. Where is it? What is it? How? What's its relation to Earth? What's its relation to the present? We have absolutely no idea, and we're not going to tell you. Just go with it. Uh, I think that's where you'd, you'd see that shift, basically. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, back to the book itself. We haven't discussed Lord Gro, who's, uh, I yes. think, an interesting character in the book. Mm -hmm. um, he's he's sort of the one character who's not a um, uh, a blood knight, I guess is the phrase used in pop culture nowadays. Like a, a an honor... Like well, a there's lord. lots of characters who aren't, aren't honorable, but like... Um, he he's like more of a scheming. Um, right. Uh, yeah. He's, he's Jafar. He's Jafar, basically. He's a yeah Machiavellian schemer sort of character. Bariago, who, I guess, is the character. Yeah, who's constantly switching sides and it, to a comical degree at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know what's funny about Lord Grow is that he's presented with a weird. I don't want to say honorable, but he's presented as having a consistent philosophy. Like, you yeah. don't get the sense that Edison dislikes Grow in any real way. Uh, it's just that he keeps seeing, he's just, he sees what's expedient and he goes with it. Let me, let me just describe you from the very, uh, like the very end, how he describes Grow. Um, uh, who, being a philosopher and a man of peace, careless of particular things of Earth, had, there, again, they say Earth instead of Mercury, had followed and observed all his days steadfastly one heavenly star. Yet now in the bloody battle before Carse died in the common opinion of men, a manifold perjured traitor that had at length gotten the garden of his guile. Again, I'm not quite sure what that means. But that sort of suggests that, like, he was a guy who had his own ideas, but it led to him acting like a complete traitor and a, and a you know, a hateful little uh, weasel, basically. He's like the one sane man surrounded by a bunch of... Um you know, death, you know, uh, death before dishonor characters. Yeah. Although um, he's surrounded by the witches who are not super honorable either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but death before, uh, defeat or, you know, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Like he's mm -hmm. more, um, uh, yeah, I'd rather I'm, live. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather live. And also, uh, I've seen it pointed out, uh, he often sides with the underdog in, in the fight at the time. So that's, that's often a, a case of, a reason for him to switch sides. Um, so it's not so much out of cowardice, it's just out of... He, he sees this side as more justified than that at, at a given time. Yeah, Except but it is at, a bit r ridiculous at the end. There, yeah, where he's... At, at the end, um, he's um, on the battlefield um, uh, fighting alongside uh, the demons, and uh, I forget who, one of the witches said, calls him a traitor, and so he instantly changes sides and kills a demon. Uh, and then uh, I think um, Spitfire kills him. So, yeah, uh, an inauspicious end for Lord Grill. Yeah, just like, what did he think was going to happen at that point? <laughs> <laughs> like... um, I, I've, I saw one uh, take that, like, he, that, that was him having, like, a breakdown, you know, uh, sort of realizing the moral consequences of what he did, but... Mm -hmm. it, it really does come across as comical. Yeah. Well, you could. All right. I mean, he's almost a cheaty character. He can't. He just can't make up his mind. You know. Um, yeah. But he doesn't. And he's not animated by like love or 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 loyalty to anyone. He's just kind of like, uh, you know, these people. Because he, you know, right at the beginning, he's 
in Witchland, but he, you know, he defected from Goblinland. So he just does that a lot. Um, yeah, and he doesn't seem to be necessarily looking for power either. That's the weird thing about him. He just kind of, he just kind of goes where he, he, yeah. he thinks. He it thinks it makes sense. Reminds me of the uh, the Sharons on uh, Battlestar Galactica. Just, um, I I think the um, uh, one of the characters said uh, an eight makes a good ally. At least, and another says, uh, at least until they see something shiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is, yeah. And I mean, that's, it's again, it's, it's almost like a function of the plot more than the characterization. Uh, but it does feel like he was going for something there. Because at no point is he, like, everyone knows he's a traitor or a guy who switches sides easily. Uh, like, that's literally how he's established it, in yeah, the story. Yeah, but he doesn't come across as, as quite as unlikable as these, as these characters usually no. are. He's not. He's yeah. not the um, sniveling little weasel. He's he's presented as more of a um, a legitimate, decent person. He just has this weird character. Yeah, the, the witches do call him a sniveling weasel at one point, but it's hard to tell if they're saying that because he is or because they're just loudmouth jackasses, basically. <laughs> yep. um, and... and he is described as like literally handsome. So again, you know, apparently not a goblin, despite being called a goblin. And, um, and, uh, they do talk about how he's the one not guy who's not really a warrior. Um, and they don't see him as a real, you know, as a real threat in terms of, uh, in terms of fighting. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a very weird character. Uh, again, you wonder if it's a factor of just uh, rewrites over the years with this story that he was working on for a long time. But who knows? So, uh, yeah, and I, I think we should uh, discuss the ending now, uh, which <laughs> is um, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the book. Uh, right, definitely the the problem that Tolkien had had an issue with morally. Um, and you can see why, uh, though I think it fits with the story and the, the kind of morality that the characters have. Um, basically, after the demons defeat Witchland, um, they're sitting around and they're all sad. Uh, and they, they say that um, they'll have no more great battles to fight, no more glory to win. Their, their lives have peaked at this point. You know, they could go into Impland and Esamosia or, you know, the... Um, the, the savage areas, but there's nobody really worthy of fighting them at this point left. And so they pray to the gods, um, again, the Greek gods, um, to um, basically just bring the witches back. Well, they don't, and, I don't think they specifically pray for that. It's just, they sort of say, would the, you know, our saga not be over and that we don't, yeah. you know, we're not going to end, then, we're not going to be, you know, declining from and, this point on yeah and then it ends with the ambassador from witchland showing up like he did at the beginning of the book right the um, story's starting all over again yeah here we go again <laughs> <laughs> like a whole ass to lollapalooza <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh and that that's the meaning of the the title basically like the the symbol appears and garice does uh resurrect but i i the real meaning is basically that the story itself is cyclical mm -hmm. which Eating which actually tail. i mean it makes a lot of sense from the perspective of folklore like if you're looking at it as a meta exploration of folklore and sagas and stuff like that it's kind of saying 
first of all, that that kind of stuff tends to have a cyclical nature. And second of all, it's sort of like, well, what if the characters in a saga kind of went, well, we're at the end of our saga. Uh, you know, we've peaked. <laughs> you know, we're never going to we've done we've done the great deeds that we're going to be known for. Uh, you know, how do we get around that? And the, the only possible answer is to go back to the beginning and start over again. Like it's, it, yeah, it's, sort of it's like a very how superhero meta. stories often just go back to the origin again and again. Sure. But, or yeah, many, met, there's many different ways you can interpret it, but they're all from like the meta storytelling point of view, from the point of view of actually being characters and living in the story. That's kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Uh, though, though it follows sort of the morality uh, of the, of the world itself, because it's very inspired by Norse sagas, mm -hmm. and you know the the heaven for um, or it's it's a little more complicated than uh, this, but basically, if you die in battle, you get the good afterlife, which is fighting every day for eternity. Right. Yes. Until that's Ragnarok, right. at least. Yeah. 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 So, um, and that's the good. That's the good ending. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's it's. You know, it's been interpreted as like they're they're training these soldiers for for the end times. That's, right. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's considered great. You just die every day. You get killed by by your <laughs> friends every day, and just come back at night mm -hmm. and have a big feast, and then do it again the next day. And uh, so, it, like I said, it it really fits with the morality of the characters in the story. But from an outside perspective, you know, somebody reading even in 1922. It's like, geez, dude, you just sentence your whole planet to in mm -hmm. eternal warfare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you have to view it as like an entertaining story and not an actual, you know, war that you that people would experience and how bad that is. It's 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 viewing war and battle and 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 fighting as like a glorious entertainment only uh which it is for the reader of course uh but you know it from the content and it's it's interesting to me that tolkien had a, had an issue with that because you know you you could you could kind of accuse him of the same thing but of course tolkien had a very strong opinion about war and that comes through in lord of the rings yeah uh, like, i mean tolkien's books are heavily inspired by norse sagas but he, in, he infuses his own catholic sensibilities into them so they're right. very influenced by his own sense of morality mm -hmm. and this is definitely not a, a catholic s sense of morality sure well yeah so and it, I, well, it's, it's more than that it's the fact that tolkien had been to he was in world war one I. I mean that was a huge impact on his thinking yep. and his and his life i as far as i know edison i i don't think he had any he ever seriously went to war if he did it certainly wasn't you know world war one uh although i mean he lived through it but it, it's just uh you know he they clearly have different views on war and tolkien is at least able to say or tolkien is very much able to say yeah this is i've been in war man war is hell it's not you know as much as we might like right might like writing these dramatic stories about war and and, and really uh ins and and look to the past and how heroic and 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 how that's a basis for our culture nevertheless it's not a good thing to actually experience and you have to acknowledge that so i'm with i'm with tolkien on that he's right uh in that sense uh but it is also a somewhat detached story of sort of you know the fantastical have you ever read yeah. um have you ever read the dark tower series by stephen king no uh it uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert, uh, there is a somewhat similar ending to that um, in some ways, uh, in that he, he evokes the idea of a sick... I don't want to spoil any more than that, 
but it does evoke a cyclical uh, path for its main character. That, but it's it's more hopeful than that. It's not just mm -hmm. oh yeah, you're condemned to do this forever. Um, but yeah, that or you get to do this forever. <laughs> well, in this in that case, it was pure, <laughs> like that's yeah. acknowledged how horrific it would be to just have to do the same thing over and over again. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, but, um, yeah. So as we were uh, talking about Edison's own life, um, just. You know, going over his Wikipedia page again, he was a, a civil civil servant before he uh, um, wrote this book. Um, he seemed to be a, a child of privilege, going to private tutors and so forth. Not that Tolkien wasn't a child of privilege, but he did, you know, at least fight in World War One and all that. So mm -hmm. um, he had yeah. a bit more of a real life, so to speak. The, both this and Lord of the Rings are the work of, you know fantasy nerds but like not victorian or edwardian fantasy nerds who read all the you know all the 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 folklore and all the 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 myth mythos and that generally would mean you were you know some of the you were part of the not the idle class exactly but the well-educated class at least mm -hmm. um so, which uh, again tolkien was literally an oxford professor um so it's 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 that sort of you know a nerd who can lose themselves in books which is always you know that's a, that's always fairly charming to me. Like as as much as you can make that criticism of this book, it's 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 still someone writing his own nerdy you know Nell Saga slash Hamlet fanfic. <laughs> so it also starts off by saying, "Don't take this as allegory or anything else other than a story," which right. is interesting. Right. Uh, and you can see why Tolkien would gravitate to that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing is that I think allegory at that time. Uh, like, we don't, ironically, as heavy-handed as a lot of stories are sometimes these days, we don't have the same um, the same kind of thing where allegory at the time is like Animal Farm, where it's literally just, I'm telling this story where every character very specifically stands for something, and everything is a very specific metaphor for a specific point. Whereas an allegory can be, you know, especially nowadays, it can be a lot more broad than that. But also, like, yeah, Pilgrim's well, Progress, even John like Bunyan Meta kind of Kafka's thing. Metamorphosis is, is an allegory, but it's applicable to a bunch of different things. And, right. Uh, what, it's whatever not Kafka had in mind, you can, you can map it onto different experiences. Right. Um, it's not telling so, you specifically what, you know, what, what, it, what everything means. I, I think the original basis for that would be something like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which, where, you know, they're basically telling you, you know, they're trying to envision, you know, Christian morality as a yeah. very straightforward or, story. Or aspects of the Fairy Queen, where, you know, characters represent different uh, ideas, and, um, you know, right. there's, there's, like, literally characters named, like, Sloth and stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. The, the, the you, you, you even see that a bit in uh, something like Jurgen. Again, which is, but with Jurgen, he's kind of doing it as a, as a somewhat tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's kind of a detached whiff on it, but he's pointing at. But it's a riff on the way, you know. Oh, and then you know, truth spoke to him. A truth was embodied <laughs> in you know a beautiful woman or whatever. Like that kind of thing happens yeah. throughout all folklore and mythology. So it's very. In fact, that's what the gods are originally in Greek mythology, at least. Uh, like it's literally they're just personifications of ideas. Yeah. I did want to mention there's lots of poems in this book, but unlike Tolkien, uh, Edison didn't write them. Uh, and there is actually a detailed um, list in the back of, of where he got the poems from. One okay, of the poems yeah, is I actually... Was, 
Yeah. One of them, well, yeah, one of them is a Shakespearean sonnet, and I yeah. recognize that one. Very I famous one, yes. Right. Shall, shall I compare, I compare them to a summer's day? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody knows that one. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't recognize any of them up until that point, but I didn't realize, yeah, that they were that that's what was going on. It actually even there, there's a Tolkienian connection because Tolkien, um, he did something. For instance, in Lord of the Rings, he talks about like the real story behind uh, the cow jumped over the moon. Right. If you remember that, mm -hmm. he kind of talks about how some of our famous folklore, you know, boiled down from uh, from and, and these where times. golf comes from. Yeah, that. golf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was invented by hobbits. And so there's a similar thing. But yeah, so, so none of the poems in this then are original to him. No, and, and he doesn't like claim they're him. Like he's not ripping right, off Shakespeare. Right, right, right. Um, he, he cites the the actual authors at the end. So that that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and and that actually gives more fuel to my fire idea that this is supposed to be like we were, you know, it's something that it's a meta myth that influenced our myths or our stories and in, in this case poems. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like maybe that's what he meant yeah. was that they, Oh yeah. These poems were all written in Mercury and Shakespeare heard them. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> seems a bit silly, but I think that's the general idea or like there's a, some kind of historical recurrence, I guess, if you like, it's a, which fits it, with the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly. While the flamboys gutter and heaven's overarching arms grow dark and we bid farewell, or is it hail and greetings? We are the demon king adorned with gold wire, Philip Rice, and a mighty warrior with mustachios of gold, Adam Prosser. We bid obeisance to our engineer, producer, and podcasting host, Alex Ross, in his high bronze keep of Never Sleeps. And our revels are attended by court minstrel Jack Furick, writer of theme songs. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, as always. It helps us pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, we really want to thank our Patreon subscribers. Uh, thank you so much uh, for helping us keep the lights on at this podcast. Uh, yep. That really means a lot to us, uh, and we know we have some... Uh, some some uh, some loyal listeners out there. Uh, if you want to join our Patreon subscribers, just go to Patreon, uh, and you can search for Spear uh, for Philip Rice one L or Adam Prosser two S's, or you could go to NeverSleepsNetwork.com/slash/series/slash/what-dash-mad-dash-universe. Uh, that's got the links, including to our Patreon pages. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast, or me personally at Prankster Thirty Six, or Spear Hafok underscore, if you want to listen to Phil, what Philip has to say on Twitter. Um, and we did want to say Bunch uh, of thank you. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 there's much wit and haberdashery. I don't know. Um, <laughs> haberdashery? Yeah, haberdashery. You like hats a lot. That's, that's something that you do on your Twitter feed. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, we wanted to uh, also just say thank you to uh, various guests and people who have helped out with the show. Uh, big thank you to Jess Nevins, as always. We didn't actually have him on this season, but uh, he was, uh, as always, he was uh, he helped inspire us a lot, uh, including giving us uh, the administra uh, administratrix uh, as a subject. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, we heard about that from a thread that you wrote uh, on Twitter, so that that was helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and he he. Uh, his Twitter is really good, and his other stuff's very uh, informative and good. Right. And we hope to have him back sometime. 
Yeah, oh, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction and Fantasy yep. is his book, if you want to look it up. Uh, it's uh, highly recommended. There's an online version of it a while back, and it was extremely useful. It actually, it's still inspiring us to for to find stuff to look for. So, uh, thank you, Jess. Um, and yeah, we also want to thank the people who we had on the show. Uh, Zach Handlin, uh, Andrew Hickey, uh, James Riley English, Charlotte Finn, and Will Staples. Um, and just to uh, anyone else who was given us help and who's given us advice uh over the years oh um dm elms has given us some uh is a loyal listener we want to thank her and she's given us some uh some some tips we might use for next year that's actually something if you're a loyal listener to what mad universe and you want to suggest something that we might look at next season uh please go ahead and do that you can again uh reply to our wmu podcast you can dm us uh or you could uh Again, subscribe to one of our Patreons or just reply to one of our Patreons or the Facebook page. Um, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any suggestions for, for something to take a look at next season. Yeah, uh, that you think we're already discussing some of the books we're going to be uh, looking at next season. Um, and uh, I wanted to do something that, w- that we haven't been doing, which is post uh, uh, lists of, of the books before we cover them so that viewers could keep along if they if they're interested because we do tend to spoil endings and stuff so um <laughs> yes yeah that's right uh, we should put a reading list up uh in advance so yeah can, we, uh, we do shift around things you know because we have sometimes we need more time to read a certain thing or whatever but uh mm-hmm. i think that'll be handy for for listeners right yeah so we, we've got some different ideas i was thinking um and i'm literally just sort of proposing this to you right now but i was thinking that even though we're probably going to be uh off now until around uh i believe october basically i want to start up again at the same time we started up uh, our first show first time at the time of year we start up our first ever show uh which i believe was the very beginning of october the very end of september um, so we'll, we're, we're going to take a few months off, but I was going to suggest, uh, to Phil that maybe we might do one or two sort of quick fill, uh, fill in shows. We might do like a short, you know, uh, catching up with stuff that we've, uh, we've talked about, like for instance, um, if they've made a movie adaptation or if it's become a, a subject of, uh, discussion since we did a show about it, we might do something sure. like that. Um, just a few different ideas and yeah, maybe there's some, uh, there's some Saturn and Verandal facts that I didn't know about when we made our episode, <laughs> including that it was adapted into Disney comics in the 70s. Oh, or wow. 60s, rather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, uh, I, I might as well talk about this now, if, if that's okay. Um, yeah, uh, because um, it had a movie um, in Italy, it was popular in Italy for much longer than it was anywhere else, including France. So in the 50s or 60s, the the Italian branch of Disney uh, did a Donald Duck parody of Saturn and Verandal, which included like him meeting uh, Captain Nemo and other stuff. So, uh, and there are apparently other comics, uh, at least inspired, like with similar names and things, to Saturn and Verandal uh, from Italy. So, that's weird. Huh? Yeah. No, that's uh, that's that's great. Yeah, there's been various things. There's things like uh, James Bond passing into the public domain. Um, uh, but yeah, there's been a few things here and there that we could uh, we could definitely talk about. Might do something special for our Patreon subscribers as well. Oh, uh, I did also want to give a shout out to Nick Moore, who's one of our most loyal. My, my he's my buddy. He's one of our most loyal listeners. 
he gave us a review, which thank you very much, Nick. And yes, anyone who uh, wants to give us a review, that's something else we could really use. Uh, they, they tend to uh, help us get noticed by the algorithm that controls all our lives these days. So uh, if you feel like, uh, if you really enjoy the show, please go to Apple iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use and leave a review. Uh, that, that's, that's very helpful. But yeah, I wanted to say thanks to Nick for being our number one fan. Um, and he's been once been with us since the beginning. Uh, there's other... Uh, anyone you want to say thanks to, Phil? Oh, uh, uh, I think we, we covered the, the, the people. Uh, um, I, I, there's, there's others, but I'm not sure if... if uh, I, I didn't ask to name them, so I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I, I would like to plug, uh, my webcomic, uh, The Apex Society, uh, which, uh, I, I had taken a little break from for the last month for, uh, uh, to avoid burnout, but I'm I've been working on it again, and I'll be posting again soon. Uh, we'll have by the time this comes out, um, and uh, I'm really uh, uh, proud of uh, the pages I've been doing recently. I think I've upped the art game in the last few issues. Yeah, um, it's looking really spectacular. Yeah. Thank thank you, um, and uh, it's uh, a lot of. Um, to be honest, a lot of the selections I make for this show are to. Uh, double his research for that book so there's a lot <laughs> lot of uh, overlap in terms of subject matter right uh, so if you like this show uh, hopefully you like that too but yeah check it out yeah yep yeah. there's lots of uh, it's it's a really really fantastic looking sh uh, looking uh, comic book I have some work on uh, comicsology you can see my stuff at phantasmic tales p h a n t a s m i c tales as in stories uh, and uh, I also, I did, as we've mentioned the last couple times, I did another uh, podcast about Star Trek. Uh, we sort of stopped. We did a few episodes and we were just going to do a limited run. Uh, we think we will come back at some point, but uh, just so you know that uh, it's out there. It's at, uh, it's called the Mirror Universe Star Trek Podcast, and it's at uh, mirroruniverse.podbean.com. Uh, me and uh, my co-host, uh, Douglas McDonald-Norman. It's good stuff. I'm pretty yeah, happy with um, it. Yeah, I've listened to all of it. It's very um, interesting and informative and uh, good discussion on... Um, it's not just uh, nerd stuff, if you will. Like, you don't have to be an expert in Star Trek. It, it just sort of talks about uh, uh, thematic things, and it's very applicable to yeah, we're, the general we're trying, society. Yeah, we're trying to catch sort of, like, what Star Trek means and the way that it yeah. sort of changes depending on like it you know we always pretend like it's one giant monolithic thing that everyone likes star trek and in fact it's been uh, it's been many different things over the years both in the intent of the writers and in how uh people interpreted it in various ways uh which i find uh, really interesting and that's kind of the main theme of the podcast uh, and, uh, I did also maybe want to give a quick shout-out to, uh, Looperman, which, uh, has a lot of great loops. I don't have the specific names in front of me, uh, but there's a few different people who have done work on, uh, who have done, uh, samples and loops that we've used for music for this. We've credited them in every case. Uh, if you check out, uh, the actual, uh, website, we've got credits for them, but, uh, yeah, Looperman has a lot of great loops, uh, public domain loops that we've been using for that. Um, and uh, I think that is just about it for the season. Like I say, we will try to pop up, pop back 
uh, once or twice as the summer goes on, but otherwise we will be back in October. Um, yep. Do you want to uh, Yeah, I'm, uh, I just uh, uh, hopefully uh, can um, get a head start on, on some of the books <laughs> for next season. Yep. I've actually read a few books on my own that we probably won't be covering, so... Yep. Um, well, yeah, we've I mean, got a few things we want to look at. We might want to look at... We're definitely not covering that biography of Stan Lee because that has nothing to do with the show, but uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, but, one of the uh, things we're going to do next year uh, is, or next season is going to be um, looking at the origins of steampunk as a genre. Uh, so we're going to yep. do a couple of different books that are tied to steampunk over... So that's going to be a little mini series within a series. Uh, we'd really like to finally do uh, the uh, Lensman series. Uh, so that's... Yeah, I... I, I had uh, just trouble getting through it just because there's so much of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's intimidating and it's hard for me to um, start. I mean, I, I have started, but it, it just, I haven't really made a dent in it yet. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to yeah, uh, yeah. get through that in the break. Um, yeah. And there, um, I'd also like to, un, you know, finish the Fairy Queen finally. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. for literally years, I guess. Yeah, well, that might be relevant. I'll see if I can have a go with that. that that's a big one, but, uh, that's you know, very long. whether it ties into the show or not, uh, we might have a... We're probably going to do something on Doc Savage next year. Uh, he's one of the big pulp figures we haven't yeah. touched on yet. Uh, we may look at specifically the Philip Jose Farmer book, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life, but probably using that as a window into the larger uh, Doc Savage mythology. Uh, we might look at the culture novels, um, there's a bunch of stuff. Anyway, we're not going to spoil it all for you now, but, yeah. uh, we've definitely got some stuff, uh, on the boil for next, uh, next time. Okay. Uh, and so, until Mercury once again climbs the nighted vaults of heaven, uh, and we are once again spirited away by a martlet to other worlds and times, we bid you adieu, and we'll see you again in a season's time. <laughs>